Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. All right, here we go, guys. We're starting up our summer series, and uh, I just want to say to any students in here, talk to Pastor Jason last night. You guys did an amazing job, uh, whether that was on programming team, whether that was uh, helping out as a junior counselor. He spoke very highly of you. And Jason, I don't even know if you're in here, uh, but, but everybody that I have talked to said Jason, who spoke at camp this week, did an amazing job as well. And that not only were the kids' lives changed, but also students and adults. So it was just a, in a, a very good time for them. Uh, we start out with a myth this morning that may be very different than kind of any other myth we talk about this summer. Uh, it comes out of a little bit of a unique perspective that I have uh, where I live in one generation with adults and yet I work and minister in another generation with our adolescents. And uh, I'm sure teachers and coaches and other people that kind of have that same dynamic going on can also kind of like feel this myth a little bit as they, they live and work throughout the week. Uh, and that myth is that sometimes we of the older generations kind of have this feeling that the next generations below us are almost unredeemable. They're almost hopeless. And I say almost because we are in here and we're church people and there's no way that we would ever say God cannot change them and work in their lives and mature them and grow them. But we kind of have this superior feeling over them. And I think the reason that we pick them, we pick adolescents, is because when you watch little kids get baptized and they want to jump up on your lap and cuddle with you while you're watching TV, like, you would never target a kid, but you target someone that is in the middle of the transition from going from a child who was getting their butt wiped a few years ago to someone that has to be an adult, and taking care of their own children within a decade of their life. And so we just kind of have this myth, we have this superiority, and what's interesting about it is I think this is something that has been going on literally every generation does it to the next generation. The older I've gotten, the more that I kind of have been able to pay attention to U.S. history and seeing that for you generation Xers in here right now, the baby boomers did the same thing to you and they were worried and, and statements were made like when these kids get in power, the whole country is going to collapse, right? And they're so different. They're so other. They have these, these thoughts. They're the black sheep of the world now or of America. Like we have these things. Sometimes statements that I even hear are they don't Make them like they used to, as if we are referring to a household appliance or a, a truck, right? And we do, and I, I kind of, I call it the MBA complex, because if you're an athlete, whether you play at the local YMCA or you watch sports, all right, every athlete and every generation of athletes always feels like theirs was the true era of the sport. Right? And the NBA, for whatever reason, seems to be the worst one of the sports. 
They, I'm sure at some point there was some guy who grew up and all he could do was dribble with his right hand, watch the ball the whole time, and somewhere he was saying, have you seen these new kids that dribble with both hands? That's not real basketball anymore. They even look at the court while they're dribbling so that they can see everything that's going on. How are they going to secure the ball, right? And the NBA just seems to do it the most, and every once in a while I see that and I hear that, just these, these small cracks that exist, even here at Hillside. I was uh, with a friend weeks ago, and uh, this friend is around my age, and he went to a local fast food restaurant, and the food was not prepared properly, so that was the 17-year-old's problem, obviously, and yeah, they probably didn't prepare it correctly. And then the food and the care and the service after he made it known to them that it wasn't prepared properly was also kind of dropped when it comes from the hospitality standpoint. Let's just put it like that. And my friend just starts ranting and raving. This would never have happened. This is, you know, like, I can't believe that this generation would do that. And these are our leaders and the world's going to fall apart. And what is America going to be when these people are in power? I mean, just all of those rants and raves. And Hillside, I literally almost slapped him. Literally. I mean that. I almost slapped him. Here's why. Because I know that guy's story from when he was 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. And he was the guy behind the counter. That was him. He was the one dropping the ball. He was the one with all of these life issues, maybe even worse than the poor kid that he was uh, just like going into. And I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, oh my word, have we, met, like, have we forgotten how far you have come in the last 20 years? What God has done in your life? How much that has changed who you are? And as I was telling Pete this week that this is kind of the myth that I wanted to start with, I, uh, I shared something with him. He, I, he, I don't think he had ever known. And that was my first impression that I ever had of Hillside, ever. In 2006, I was still at Liberty University. I was in, in Virginia. And Dave, my cousin, said, hey, Mike, I know that you're getting ready to be a pastor. Do you want to just come and be a part of a summer at Hillside? This was in 2006. We weren't even in this building yet. Everything was being done down in the, the student building. He said, you can go on some mission trips and just kind of hang out, help out with student ministry, adult ministry, kids ministry, and just kind of get your feet wet. And so I show up, and my first opportunity really is to, to go to San Antonio on a mission trip. And, and so I do that, and then I got to go to Honduras, and I got to help with some kids' stuff. And what amazed me about Hillside was that it was so raw, it was so fresh. Like, I could see that there were people that had come to Christ just within the last few years of their life, and it was so genuine. It was so humble. We weren't caught up in what color the carpets were, what, what they were going to paint, well, all of the, the things that the church that I had grown up in kind of got caught up in and got arrogant and, and superior and caused division within the church. Like It was just about Christ. And I left after that summer. And I don't know if you're allowed to say this to God as a pastor. I don't 
I have no idea. But I, I said to God, God, before I serve anywhere else, I would love to serve at Hillside. Because it was so refreshing. It was so refreshing to be a part of that type of Christian. And even now as we talk about this and and we we start this summer myth series, I can honestly say that in 10 years, what's beautiful about this is that when I talk about this, I'm not chastising you as parents and grandparents at all because what I have seen from the student ministry perspective is so encouraging and so accepting and so loving and such a desire to pass on the baton to the next generations. The whole legacy campaign is built around what are we looking ahead to and it's so beautiful. And so today as we do this, I'm not upset with anybody in this room because everybody in this room for the most part gets it. I just want to take some of those cracks that sometimes we have, these little hairline cracks that exist inside of us and just bring them to the surface, make us all aware of them, and then say, that's not the culture that we want to continue to be at Hillside. I was recently at a, uh, a wing joint with a couple students, and, and when we got our appetizers, they brought out a plate. And my plate had this small crack that went like a quarter of the way into the appetizer plate. So I just kind of looked at it and, you know, I don't know why I like to do this. Sometimes I break things like in stores, like at TJ Maxx, I'm walking through with my wife and I'll see like, you know, something that has a little ding in it. And so I'll go over to like the giraffe leg and kind of like see how far it will bend and then snap. And I'm like, oh crap. And then I take it to the front and say, hey, do I need to pay for this? I just broke, I, I had one of those moments at the wing joint. My, my plate had that crack in it. And so I just grabbed each side of the plate and I just kind of wishboned it and just went, and it just right into two pieces, like right there. And I'm just, oh no, I got to tell the waiter. And I thought these are those little cracks that form inside of us though, that look so harmless These little values and principles and social mores we make for ourselves that look so harmless, but yet can cause some type of damage. And that damage was seen a few months ago. I had some friends come in from uh, North Carolina. He's my childhood best friend. And they said, Mike, we want to go to a country music concert. You're talking to the wrong guy, okay? I'm from Pennsylvania. I don't know what I'm doing down here. So we do like the most northern thing I guess we could do. We go to Billy Bob's, okay? That's, and I don't know, some of you may be like, yep, that's the place to do it. And some of you may be like, Mike, you got to go to the grassroots. You know, this is where real country music played. I have no idea. I just did what a northerner would do. I went to the biggest country music place that I could find. And while we're there, there's a guy, we had never heard of him. It's a Saturday night. I'm literally just doing it for the experience for my friends. This guy gets up on the stage, probably say in his late 50s, 60s. And pretty quickly, the crack was evident to everybody in the room that some of these feelings, some of these generational arrogances, 
existed in his heart. Because after the first song, he said, who played last night? Oh, that guy? That little 25-year-old punk and some other choice words? The guy that's ruining country music? I'm just sitting, I'm just sitting in the chair and I'm, I'm thinking, he's saying this from the stage right now? He's speaking that poorly about his genre of music? Because somebody's 25 and they're starting out their career and you in your 60s maybe wish that it would have gone a little bit different for you and now that crack that has been deep in your heart for a while is now coming out in such a disgusting way in front of this whole crowd of people. That's what's at stake in us. If we allow these little bits of superiority this division, dissension to exist inside of us when it comes to other generations as well. Um, back, in, back in 2017, the fall of 2017, Pete did a series called Crystal. And I don't know if you guys do this, but when Pete tells us what we're getting ready to discuss, sometimes I actually say, eh, I don't think there's gonna be much I'm gonna learn from that series. Okay, I don't know if you do that too. Like he says, hey, this is what we're gonna be going through. Like, hey, we're going through John, all the signs and someone may go, I don't think I'm gonna really get that much. I don't know. And what normally happens in those moments when when Mike kind of was, oh yeah, I already know everything we're talking about. What normally happens is God's scripture and Pete's messages impact me in ways that go beyond the the talks or the series that I thought I was gonna get the most out of. And a crack was shown in my life in that crystal series as we started talking about the gospel and the implications of the gospel in the book of Colossians. And how when you have nothing to offer God, when you have no foot to stand on, when you have earned nothing before him, then how after you have been saved... Do you develop these layers and levels of superiority where you look to make circles in your life so that others can be outside of those circles? How do you make tears in your heart about what separates you from other people when the crux of what you believe in is that you had nothing to offer to begin with? Galatians talks about this. Another book, rich in the gospel, right at the end of chapter three in verses 26 through 29, it says, for you all are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. When you come to him, there's now a new reality There's a new maturity that is put on, like putting on new clothes. And here's the implication of putting on that new clothing. There was no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the children of Abraham. You are his heirs and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. What is Paul saying? He was saying it in Colossians and he's saying it now to us in Galatians. 
He identifies three different distinctions, these natural distinctions or differences within culture, right? Race, socioeconomic level, and gender. And Paul isn't saying here that when you come to Christ, it is a raceless society. We all become a universal race. He's not saying that at all. There's still beautiful things about every culture that they bring to the world. There's strengths and weaknesses that we all bring as we live together as races. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that when you come to Christ, now we live in this communist utopia where everybody is socially and economically equal. He's not saying that when you come to Christ, your gender no longer matters. It just kind of gets neutralized and wiped away. What he is saying is, and what Pete made very clear out of the book of Colossians during that crystal series is that when you come to Christ, when you have nothing to stand on, these areas that are natural distinctions and differences that we live in every single day can no longer They can no longer be used against other people in a way that makes you feel like you have a better foot to stand on or you are higher than them in one way or another. And when Pete talked about that, the implications of that type of understanding of the gospel, it revealed in me a crack so quickly. I hate to even talk about it, especially in front of 400 people right now. For me, the crack that was revealed and the place of superiority and disdain and arrogance all had to do around the fact that Mike holds contributing to society as one of its highest moral principles and values that you can have as someone that lives in America. And if you can do that, if you can contribute in some way, spiritually, physically, emotionally, then you have high standing. This crack had formed inside of my heart. And so very quickly, some of you may know where this is headed. People that cannot do that have no value. And as Pete talked about the implications of the gospel, the most extreme case of this is the homeless. The homeless. Because here's a group of people that for one reason or another are not only not contributing to society, they are actually sucking the life at times out of society. And we're going through this and I'm just like, God, this can't remain anymore in my heart. It can't stay there. And so for me, that humbling experience, that unifying experience of Mike, don't feel like you can put yourself and your life choices above someone else who maybe had harder situations. It was very humbling. It, It dropped everything in me. That crack started to heal up. Sitting down with pastors and volunteers that work regularly with the homeless so that I could understand it better and not be some type of judgmental, superior snob when it came to what my life looked like compared to somebody else. That's my crack. The one we're talking about today is generation, is age. 
And very easily, we could put that in here with what Paul says in Galatians 3. Not just race, not just gender, not just socioeconomic level, but age. Because there is such age differences and gaps that exist naturally, and that can't be who we are, Hillside. That can't be it. If anybody can offer the next generation something, it has to be the church. It has to be people who have been changed by the gospel, who have been humbled and unified, saying, come on, here it is. And so to end, I just want us to kind of go through the implications of that gospel and what it looks like for each of us. And I want you to see a couple things. I want to note a couple things as we go into this. The first thing is that you will not hear me ask for you to help in the student ministry. Okay? I'm not doing a volunteer push right now. Everybody can relax, can chill. I know that, you know, if you thought that, some of you wouldn't have come today would have woke you up in cold sweat in the middle of the night. Like, that is not what I'm doing right now at all, okay? The other thing that I am not doing is I'm not getting super, like, small picture. I'm not gonna just get right down in. This is what it looks like, parents. This is what it looks like, grandparents. Like, right here, look at it. This is all big picture. I'm not putting a plan in place because plans are not the best thing. Culture trumps plans every day of the week. And so just creating a culture, Hillside, where these things are important to us, where the implications of the gospel and the humbling process that it is in our lives are important to us, where it's dropping and healing these cracks inside of us that cause resentment and bitterness and arrogance, that we're letting those things go. And so here's the first one. The first implication is that we choose empathy over judgment. Choose empathy over judgment. What do I mean by empathy? Instead of, and this judgment is not like discernment, it's self-righteous judgment. It's one that roots itself in pride. Instead of sitting where you sit, being a mature adult that has had God working in your life for years, Don't forget about that. Instead, choose to understand this next generation, these next generations. Choose to to put yourself in their shoes. Here's what I can tell you. It's different. It's different. Like, when you as a, a parent or an adult have something wrong with your phone, you don't hand it to another parent or adult, right? You hand it to your four year old. It's different. I'm I'm admitting that. It is different. Just like your generation was different from the one that came before, it's different. All right? But you know what's not different? In the book Growing Young, the authors talk about as they, they got a chance to sit and pull with the adolescent era and adolescent generations, they said, you know what's not different? is the same three big questions that you asked when you were their age and that even on a daily or weekly or monthly basis, you ask right now as a Generation Xer or an elder millennial or a baby boomer, wherever you fit, 
the same three big questions get asked across all boards, across all lines. That is, who am I? What is my identity? Where do I fit in belonging? And what, what difference do I make? Purpose. Right? Those are the same questions that you sitting right now are asking yourself at times throughout your life. And maybe you don't ask them as much as you used to, but they're still being asked. Especially when times are tough, when one of these things is out of sync, they're being asked. You're going through them. Those are the same things that students are asking. And this is why I say, this is why I say that if the church is not going to be this for our next generations, who else is? Who else can answer those questions like the gospel of Christ can? Who else can help people? Who else can guide the generation? Who's going to take the kids of today and say, hey, you want to know what your identity is? It's Christ. That's the only thing that works. I've tried other things and that's it. Who else is going to be able to say, you know what? You need to know where to belong. Here's a church full of love and acceptance. Even while you are on an issue right now where we may not see clearly. Here's a church that is willing to love and disciple and mentor and accept you even when we may be in two different spots on an issue, right? Like where else are you gonna find purpose like the purpose that you have been given as a follower of Christ? Where else? We, uh, kids camp just got back, but you all may have seen that a few weeks ago, uh, our student ministry went to San Antonio and had an amazing time. It's the only mission trip I've ever been on in San Antonio where we had highs of the day at 88 degrees. Like it was freaky. Normally, first couple times I went on, it was like 105 every day. I'm just, what are we doing out here, God? You know? But that idea of mission and purpose is so infused into Hillside and especially into our student ministry parents and grandparents. Because it's not as if this next generation does not want purpose. It's that sometimes we don't give them purpose. We're too busy carrying out our purpose that we stop thinking about making sure that they are coming into God's purpose and his mission at the same time. And so everywhere in our student ministry, at all moments, in the weeks, in the months, in the years, in the events, in the mission trips, everywhere, we want purpose for your kids. And here's what it looks like. Because if you got to sit, if you got to sit down there and hear some of the things that God does in a 17-year-old, and a 14-year-old, and some of the things that they are expressing that the Holy Spirit is impacting them on, it would literally knock you off your feet. To hear a senior, is going into a senior year, and as we graduate a massive senior high class, it's like the one thing that God has been impacting on me as I go from being a junior to a senior this next year. How in the world can I 
be a missional leader in the student ministry if I'm not first attached to God and he is my source of strength. Do you think those things when you were 17? Is that, is that going through your mind? And as he's telling his mom when he gets back, he's tearing up and his mom's like, this kid never cries. It's not like me, okay? Never cries. And he's, he's, he's telling his mom, he's like, this is what God's teaching me right now. So I've got to be connected to him if I have anything to offer all of the younger generations in the student ministry. Or another girl in our ministry that is going into her junior year. And Gracie is the apologist of the student ministry. She is asking massive questions about faith. Now just asking or studying them she also then goes, and the reason why she does it is because she has so many agnostic and atheistic friends at her high school that she wants to know these things. She wants to be able to discuss these things with them. So the last time that her and I were texting was about the temporality, atemporality, or omnitemporality of God. Okay? That's who she is. And she loves discussing this stuff and praying for her friends. While she's there, we're doing a VBS and one of the ministries, I remember them saying a couple years ago, they have this Muslim family in their community and uh, they kind of allow their kids to be present, but not at the same extent that they allow, you know, other people allow their kids to be present in the ministry. And over time, that relationship has continued to get better and better between the San Antonio ministry and this Muslim family. And, uh, while, while Gracie was down there, she's with the eight or nine-year-old daughter of the Muslim family. And while they're doing a craft or a game or just kind of hanging out, the little girl looks at Gracie. She says, tell me everything you know. He's like, what are, you, what are you talking about? I mean everything I know. Tell me everything you know about Christ. I want to know everything. 16, 17 year old now gets to share. It's not, an, it's not a coincidence that the apologist of our student ministry was the one that God used to say everything that she knew about Christ to that little Muslim girl. It's crazy. Choose empathy over judgment. The next time that one of those cracks forms because of a bad experience you had at a fast food restaurant, choose to understand that this adolescent in some ways is very different from you, but in, in many of the deep ways is exactly the same as you. And that God is working in their generation just like he worked in your generation as well. The second one. The second one, church, is that we choose support over abandonment. At times, talking to parents, talking to grandparents, it's just kind of like some moments where you just go, I'm done. I don't even, I'm out of here. So choosing to support instead of abandon is a massive thing. Now, I want to be very clear that support does not mean just being busy as a family. It's not it at all. 
Support doesn't just mean giving them what they want, getting them to the next baseball game or football game or basketball. That's not what it means. All right? Support. Support is genuine, honest, transparent conversations, moments together where your family, even though friends are more important to them than they ever have been in their life, where your family is the foundation in Christ that they need. That's what support means. It doesn't mean you always understand. It doesn't mean that you have to act like you have never made a mistake. Like I got a chance to speak uh, to all of the young mothers at Mops a few months ago. And yeah, that's a weird thing. Okay, like why am I here kind of thing, you know? But, but it truly is this, this moment to say what your student, what your, your adolescent needs is not for you to have all of the answers. They just need to know that at times you didn't have the answers either. And what that meant for your faith and how that meant you learn to lean on Christ, that's what they need. That's the support that they need at the deepest levels of just being a parent, just spending time, having eye contact. Support also means that you're a student of their generation. Here's what I mean. You should know by now that social media and extreme video game playing are not that great when done for eight hours a day of your child's life, okay? There is not a single study anywhere saying, oh yeah, this is a good thing. Let your kids do it. The anxiety and depression that hits our adolescents and our adults at a level that no one has ever seen in the Western world, a lot of it goes back to extreme uses of a social media and extreme uses of video games. And so you have to be a student as a parent. That's what support looks like, is, is you checking in on what is going on in their generation, why they think a certain way, how they think. Those, those are important things. Even this, I, this social media is funny because I, I came across an article that was written back in February of 2018 uh, where, where literally Silicon Valley CEOs and app developers are making their kids basically just go dark. Like they're not allowing them to have smartphones, iPads. Uh, you know, they're not allowing them to have social media accounts because they're on the flip side of it and here's what they know is you make money in the game by creating addictive platforms that keep people on your apps and video games, right? That's how you make money. The more you do it, the more money you make. And so as parents, being a student of your child and offering them support means, honey, I know you're gonna hate me for this, but when you get home from school, you're playing video games for 30 minutes and it's done, it's done. Like, that's what it means to support in this generation. There are not many times that I speak to parents where this topic does not come up because it is massive. And you playing Pong on an Atari somewhere is not the same thing. So you need to know. It comes up every single time I talk is the extreme use of social media uh, and video game has to start being shut down. And here's the beautiful thing, Hillside is when I talk to my wife who works at a local high school or local middle school, and then I observe the students at Hillside. When I hear stories of her dealing with kids that are not churched 
And then I, I observe the students and children at Hillside. Parents are taking this topic so seriously inside of the church, and I commend you guys for that. You're hearing it. You're willing to be the bad guy that says, honey, you're not going to be on Instagram for eight hours tonight. It's not going to happen. We're going to sit down and play a board game instead. And I see the difference. I see how your kids can look people in the eye and have conversations, right? I see how they want to think outside of getting a heart, a like on Instagram because of a picture they posted. They see that the world is bigger than getting a couple likes. And so I commend you in that and continue to support your kids and not abandon them. And then the last thing, the last thing, as we are intentional with this next generation, is that you choose prayer over impatience. Oftentimes we can look at this generation just be thinking, why don't you catch up to where I am right now as an adult? Why are you dealing with this? When we forget, just like my friend that almost slapped in the face, that was you. Because of the faithful prayers of your youth leaders, of your parents, your grandparents, you are sitting here, the person you are in Christ because someone was advocating for you. If I have to think about how good the average 16 year old in the middle of their invincibility complex that they have, all right, if I have to think about that person and say, how well would they grade out on understanding the power of prayer? I'd say, not that well. Because as we get older, as we we start to understand that we're not invincible and everything's not in our control, we understand how much we need to pray. So the implication of this is that the 16-year-old, the 17-year-old, the 18-year-old, at that age is not good at prayer. You know who is? You guys. You've had the moments in your life where you go, God, if I don't start my day with 30 minutes of just literally sitting in your presence and praying for the things and your interaction, I don't know what I would do. Most 16, 17, 18 year olds aren't thinking that yet. They're busy doing things. That's why I need you. That's why I need the parents and the grandparents and the leaders lifting up and advocating for this next generation and saying, God, continue to work in their generation just like you worked in our generation. Continue to expand your kingdom throughout the earth through them as well. Continue to impact their life. Continue to move with your Holy Spirit in my child because nothing that I am saying is working and so obviously the only thing that's gonna change is divine impact that you bring 
Just like at times the only thing that changed you parents and grandparents is the divine impact that God has had in your life. And so I need you. I need you to be lifting up the children's ministry, the youth ministry, the college age ministry, all of these people that are developing. I need you to be advocates for them because they don't know yet how badly they need it. But you do. A couple years ago, I'll close with this. We're getting ready for a D now. We do our D now weekends in February. And uh, I got a note. I got a note from, uh, from Ellen Dibbler. And some of you, when I say her name, you probably know what's about to come next. Because Ellen's been out of the student ministry for a while. Okay? It's been a while since she's been in the student ministry. But she is a faithful prayer faithful. And so I got this note and I opened it up and I said, Mike, I heard that you have a D now weekend coming up. And I just want you to know, praying that God does some amazing things in the lives of our students over this weekend. And I just thought there's someone that gets it. Ellen, who right now has no connection with the student ministry, understands the power of prayer and what is needed for this next generation because it's not what we say, adults. It's lives lived faithfully and modeled for Christ so that they can observe and it's the Holy Spirit's impact so much more importantly than what we are doing ourselves. And so we need prayer. And if you don't mind, I know that in second service, we'll have our big group of students. They're coming in today. So they'll all be sitting over there in second service. But if you don't mind us taking a moment to pray right now before we even leave this room, I think it would be foolish if we walked out of here, thought about where we were gonna eat lunch and just kind of move from here without praying. It would be a very dumb thing for us to do this morning. So if you don't mind, would you rise to your feet? And parents, grandparents, right now, I see that you have a couple of kiddos maybe around you, maybe a teenager or a child. The first thing I want to do is, while Charlie's playing, I'm going to let you just kind of have a few moments of silence with God. And if your kids sit next to you, grab them. Hold them. Hug on them. Just be lifting them up to God. Maybe they're not in here right now, Hillside, but maybe you know that child. Maybe they're at home right now. They didn't wake up. They didn't want to wake up to come to church. Maybe they're at college. Maybe your child is actually a parent themselves now. You know how desperately they need prayer. The first thing I want us to pray for is for the younger generations than you. And then in a moment, we're going to reverse that. I want to pray for you guys as well. So let's just take a moment and pray. Father, this morning as we close the service, 
collectively as the church community, we want to admit that no matter how much empathy and support we provide to this next generation, if your spirit is not moving, if your divine presence is not in their lives, all that work, all of that effort will be for nothing. And so God, as a church, we want to pray for these next younger generations. We want to pray that you continue to raise up leaders, faithful leaders that serve you, whether that's inside the church or outside the church, God. Father, you continue to move just like you have moved in the generations sitting in here right now. In the same ways that you have matured, discipled, caused trials for growth, that you will continue to do that. Father, do not abandon them like you have not abandoned us. Put all of this on your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Parents, responsibility that you have been given is incredibly difficult. Well, do not deny that these are hard times, but just like you went through hard times that we like to forget and fantasize about, God was faithful to you then and he still is now. And so if you don't mind, I want to pray for you. So kids, here's what I want you to do. I want you to now hug on your parents. And I'm gonna give you a second to pray for them, to thank God for them, and to pray for the responsibility that they have. It's massive to raise you in a way so that you can see what loving God really looks like. So pray for them for a moment. Father, you have given parents in this room a lofty hard responsibility and God I thank you that at Hillside I get to watch parents that take that responsibility very seriously Father continue to give them grace continue to give them perseverance and patience Father, give them empathy and understanding and above all else, God, give them the will to do your your world's work. To be the hands and feet, to be the mission, to be the light that you have called them to be, not just in their families, not just in this church, but in their communities as well, God. May that power come from you. Not from us, but from you. Thank you, Father, for our time this morning. Hear these prayers, God, and do amazing work in your name. Amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.